I think when we work with forges, uh, it's it's very interesting to see that a lot of the changes they don't happen at once, but they continue to happen over time. Sure. So I think a lot of the key things that change over time they they happen gradually. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Typical fresh cow incidence of clinical hypocalcemia is 3 to 6%, while subclinical hypocalcemia affects 50% or more of mature cows. Based on cutting-edge research, Excellent offers a new approach that is both effective and easy to use. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. Welcome back to the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Barry Bradford from Michigan State University. I'm honored today to be interviewing Dr. Luis Ferretto. Luis is from Brazil originally, and he earned his BS there at Sao Paulo State University in 2008. Uh, and immediately after that, he came to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for an internship and then ended up uh, completing his master's and PhD degrees in dairy science focused on applied dairy nutrition and forage quality. After completing his PhD, Luis joined the William Minor Agricultural Research Institute as a postdoc. And from 2016 to 2020, he was then an assistant professor of livestock nutrition at the University of Florida. So then he returned uh, to the University of Wisconsin-Madison as an assistant professor in ruminant nutrition, extension specialist in the Department of Animal and Dairy Sciences. His research interests are applied dairy cattle nutrition and management with an emphasis on starch and fiber utilization of dairy cows, corn silage and high moisture corn quality and digestibility, and use of alternative byproducts as feed ingredients, as well as supplementation of feed additives. So, uh, Dr. Ferretto, thanks again for being part of this podcast. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Happy to be here. I'm a big fan of your work, but I want to start off with a little bit of your personal background, if you don't mind. What what part of Brazil are you from? Did you grow up in an ag community? Yeah, so I actually, uh, I'm from Sao Paulo State. Uh, I actually grew up in a city. Okay. Uh, uh, my hometown, Xundiaí, is about 40 or 50 miles from Sao Paulo City, and it has about 400,000 people. You know, so when people think about agriculture, we actually don't think about my hometown. But uh, my family actually uh, always had a small farm uh, in the countryside of the state. Uh, so I had a lot of opportunity to interact with that pretty much every single weekend, you know, which kind of drove my my desire to work with agriculture, you know, and uh, I think was crucial to, to determine what I wanted to do and how I end up here. Nice. Okay. And it always amazes me that um, you're you're tough enough to actually want to move to Wisconsin, not just once, but twice as a Brazilian. I, that just shows the kind of resilience you have, I guess, making it through those winters. <laughs> yeah, it was not an easy choice when you consider the winter. But, you know, uh, if, if you told me like 20 years ago, hey, you're going to live in a place that snows, 
I'll tell you, you're crazy, you know, <laughs> but in reality, you, you, you just adapt, right? You learn how, uh, well, the, the day-to-day effects of that and how to adjust and, uh, and I think it works great. So, you know, absolutely. Madison's a nice place. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's dive in a little bit. So you've done a tremendous amount of work on optimizing use of forages in dairy cattle diets, and you've, you've worked on You've done a lot of work on corn silage, but other forages as well. And I think it, I'll be really interested to hear your perspective on you know, what do you think are the most important changes or discoveries or advances that have taken place over the last, say, 15 years in the dairy uh, industry? Yeah, I think when we work with forages, uh, it's it's very interesting to see that a lot of the changes, they don't happen at once, but they continue to happen over time. Sure. So I think a lot of the key things that change over time, they they happen gradually, right? So I think something that was very important, and I'll have to go back a little bit more than 15 years for that, is the importance of processors, right? So how we process kernel in corn silage. Uh, this is also important if you think about uh, snaplage, uh, because the processors may affect some of that as well. But if you think about the 90s here in U.S., Basically, processors was not common, right? right? And then the processors became common. A lot of research happened, and people start to adjust for that and make sure kernels were actually broken at harvest, you know. And then together with that, as we progress to the 2000s, we had methods to actually evaluate for that. Not only laboratory methods like corn silage processing score, which I think it was a game changer. Uh, for producers and nutritionists to be able to actually see what's happening with that silage, uh, but also on-farm methodology that allow you to see that real time, right? Because if you think about the laboratory management uh, or method, uh, you will submit a sample. It's going to very likely take a couple of days, and you cannot wait two days to continue harvesting. So, you know, there are other assays that allow us to do that. So those are some of the examples that I think were very important, you know, and obviously by breaking kernels, you just optimize the use of starch, which I think was key for corn silage. Uh, In terms of other technology, uh, things like different hybrids like BMR, for example, I think they were known during the 90s and early 2000s, but I think the amount of research that occurred in the early 2000s until now and the different uses for that uh, I think it's also very intriguing to me. Like, for example, BMR was more, you know, it's a hybrid choice if you go through some of the initial research. But then if you go back to the last, I'm going to say five, maybe 10 years, BMR is actually what is used to test the effect of the UNDF, right? And digested NDF after 240 hours incubation room and fluid, which is one of the metrics that important uh, formulation models use uh, to predict intake today, right? So I right. think some some of those key aspects of how research evolves and continues to evolve, like I guess, uh, that are very important. Good points. One question I've had in my head, and I've never dug into it. Maybe you know. So kernel processing clearly improves starch availability to the animal. We get greater digestibility, particularly early post harvest, where it hasn't had months and months to ferment. Um, is it also true that by breaking up that starch kernel and, and maybe making some of the starch more readily available, are we getting a more rapid fermentation and getting pH down more quickly in the silage, or is that not really the case? 
Um, I don't think that changes the dynamics of silo fermentation okay. uh, because at the end of the day, the, the corn plant has a lot of sugar that bacteria will be utilizing, right? What are soluble carbohydrates for fermentation? So the pH decline, I think, is fast enough. Okay. However, uh, we ran a study a couple of years ago where we actually wanted to learn if by having intact kernels instead of broken kernels, it changes what the bacteria can do in terms of exposing the starch. Because something that's a little bit more recent uh, compared to some of those other technologies about starch digestibility is that today we know why fermentation improves starch digestibility or starch availability to be more accurate. Uh, so basically what it happens is uh, the bacteria in the silo uh, have proteases, right? So they can secrete some proteases that actually break down some of the prolamine proteins which surround the starch granules, right? And those prolamine proteins is actually what causes issues with digestion in the rumen. So because of that, uh, there is this extra benefit of breaking kernels, right? So uh, now that we know that bacteria is one of the, the key players here, we also know that if you don't break kernels, uh, actually, you don't get the same extent of this benefit, okay? Uh, I have to be careful with this statement because to my knowledge, there is one trial that measured that, right? So all the time we rely on one trial, we are risking pretty much everything. Sure. Uh, but I think it makes sense if you think from a rumen yeah. perspective, right? Because the intact kernel uh, basically does not allow the bacteria to uh, attach and start the digestion process. So my best guess is that's true for the silo as well. Great point. Okay, thank you. So, if if we sort of think about this from the perspective of a of a dairy farm, and an overall forage program has implications for almost everything the farm does. It it has implications for land use, for nutrient management, and of course, uh, what we focus on a lot: cattle health and productivity. So, if, if I handed you a farm tomorrow, we'll make it a thousand cow farm, and you have to manage it. Talk me through your thought process and how you develop uh, a forage program if you could start from scratch? Yeah, uh, that's a great question and definitely not an easy one. No. Uh, and uh, I, what I think is that uh, you have to understand the entire system to determine uh, what would you do for a forage program. Uh, I think something that would dictate uh, some of my decisions would be uh, how the farm is arranged, if I have a structure to have different nutritional groups, you know, so I could have different diets because then I could have uh, perhaps different forages uh, as a target for different groups, Yep. you know. Uh, so let's assume that we do, right, just for this exercise. Uh, so if this is true, I probably will have more flexibility in terms of different hybrids as well as different uh, crops uh, that I would be using, right? Uh, one thing I always like to mention is that I think it's very important to have more than one crop. And I say that because in Brazil, uh, most diets, they are actually relying a lot in corn silage, right? Obviously, there are uh, specific areas in Brazil that can have very good haylage or very good hay, but it's not everywhere. So a lot of times, nutritionists have to focus on uh, literally corn silage-based diets, which makes diet formulation much harder. Sure. Right? If you think about some of the recent uh, research, actually mixing corn silage with uh, alfalfa, for example, it actually gives better results. Right? So I'll definitely consider that into the evaluation. Uh, assuming I have enough land, then it will make things a little bit easier, which I think is a challenge in many places for many dairies in the U.S., 
right? So if that's a correct assumption or a true assumption, I think what I would do is have a mixture between alfalfa for haylage and corn silage. Uh, and then for corn silage, what I would do is I'll try to have a mixture of conventional hybrids or maybe new types of specialty hybrids, uh, and then hopefully some brown midrib or PMR corn hybrids, right? And the reason why I'm mentioning those is I do think having something slightly more digestible fiber for fiber, like uh, the BMR hybrids, allow you to actually implement higher forage diets and then reduce some of the costs of uh, purchasing feeds, right? Uh, and also, I think that BMR could be a very good ally for early lactation cows when you can boost some of the initial intake and help with some of the potential metabolic disorders, right? So if I have this, I think I'll be very happy, okay? I will tell you that uh, I'm not a specialist in manure management. Sure. Okay, so I will have to hire someone to guide me through everything I would do wrong, you know, to figure out what the best way to implement that. But that's what be something I would consider as well, okay? Uh, and then if we move towards implementing forage to harvesting, a couple of things I like to do is is to make sure I build all my feeding area according to what I would be feeding, right? So if I have these multiple hybrids, I would like to have space to have either multiple bunkers or multiple bags, right? And in, if I'm designing bunkers, I would like to have bunkers that actually have, um, I'm going to say, perfect dimensions so I can feed what I have to feed and make sure I avoid some of the deterioration as I open those silos and, uh, and things like that. And also consider a lot of the silage safety, uh, which is some of the issues that some of those dairies may have now, they are growing, but they don't have space to grow, you know, their feeding management or feeding areas. And this could be an issue as well. So, Oh, you thought through that pretty completely. I, I have to say that's, that's one sign of wisdom, right? Is knowing, knowing where your expertise is inadequate and where you need to look for uh, other help. So that's good. Um, I, I, you did mention the concept of having the ability to feed separate groups Talk me through that a little bit. Why why do you have interest in feeding you know specific forages to specific cows? Yeah, so I, I think cows vary drastically in energy and nutrient requirements, right? And if we could, I, I think the ideal would be to feed individual cows exactly what she needs, right? Like what we would do with humans, right? Uh, unfortunately, I know that this is not uh, easy to accomplish. Let's put it like that. If you could, right? I don't even think you can. Even for research, it's very hard to do that when we have tight yeah. stalls because it requires a lot of personnel and then you completely change cow's routine and other things. So said that, the best it can be done is perhaps separating some of those cows into similar groups, right? Maybe based on parity, right? So you can put older cows together with uh, older cows rather than having uh, some of the first lactation halfers there, you know, where social dominance could be a, a big deal. Uh, the other issue is we want to make sure the cows that are uh, peaking and producing a lot of milk are eating actually a diet with a reasonable amount of energy compared to cows that are close to dry off where you actually want to remove some of the energy to make sure they don't get fat, right? So I think that's that's my rationale behind that. 
And obviously, if you could have any number of groups, you would do any sort of combination that would be perfect. But, you know, uh, I, right. I know this is not true for most dairies. It's virtually impossible, to be honest with you. But, you know, you can adjust uh, based on what would be the most important for each dairy and start from there. Yep. Okay, thanks. All right. So I know you've got an active research program, uh, good graduate students. Let's talk a, a little bit about the primary research questions you're focused on right now. Can you t- walk us through two or three of your main topic areas? Yeah. Um, so we we actually have our program divided into three main areas. Okay. Uh, the first area is um, anything related to silage fermentation and digestibility. And obviously the main focus is corn silage and high moisture corn. Uh, so from that perspective, actually, uh, the main project we have going on right now is we want to update some of the equations of the MILK 2006, which is going to become, I don't know, MILK 2023, 2024, something like that. Uh, and one of the drivers for that is obviously the new uh, NASEN or you know the new NRC. Because right. now that we have new equations and new ideas, uh, I think it's easier to start extrapolating those back to corn silage and try to uh, make some changes uh, to some of those predictions. So that's the main thing we are working on right now. Uh, obviously, there are many issues associated with that. It's not as easy as we would like uh, it to be. So we are also running studies to generate some data for that, right? So a lot of these studies we are conducting right now is to help to support uh, either this tool or tools that could be created uh, together with the MILK 2006 uh, that could help not only farmers, but also nutritionists to make decisions about their forage programs. So that would be the key uh, for our forage program right now. Uh, the second main area for real, real quick, I'm sorry, Luis, just in case people aren't familiar with it. So MILK 2006, I, I guess crudely I would describe it as a, as a tool to help people select hybrids? Yes. So the MIP 2006 was, uh, and all the other versions of that before, yeah. they were initially developed as a tool to help rank corn hybrids. Okay. So basically, uh, if you think about hybrid trials from a university perspective, uh, basically when we harvest all the hybrids and we send those for analysis and get all the results, we add those to the spreadsheet and we end up with numbers that describe potential milk production per ton of forage or potential milk production per area, like acres or hectares. and yep. So that's the basis for that. Uh, our goal is to steal that, but we actually also want to have a more dynamic tool that allow nutritionists to play with other factors as well. Okay. So probably, I don't know if it would be the same spreadsheet or multiple. Uh, I would prefer one uh, because it makes the, uh, the effort easier, but I don't think it will be the case. And then our second area is uh, general dairy nutrition. Uh, I've been working primarily with meat lactation cows, uh, but I have interest in you know, uh, any cows, to be honest with you. Uh, but what we have been working on the most is how diets interact uh, with cow performance and feeding behavior. You know, uh, I actually really like this aspect of feeding behavior, uh, especially because I know that forage is... Uh, may have a very high impact on that, depending on the digestibility, particle size. So so this is another area we have been working on, uh, either through uh, feeding different diets and evaluating those. With uh, We have Eisentech feeders here at UW-Madison. Those are gates that allow cows to reach only the gates that they have sort of permission for. 
right? And allow us to automatically uh, record every time she enters those gates, the specific amounts she consumes, and from there we can calculate any sort of feeding behavior, right? Uh, a, key, a couple of key things I want to understand related to feeding, feeding behavior would be, uh, first, quality and amount of forage in a diet. How does that change feeding behavior? But also, how does that change their behavior during the summer? Is there a reason to feed high forage or high concentrate during the summer uh, based on feeding behavior of those cows? And obviously, I don't have an answer for that, but uh, uh, hopefully we're going to have some inputs related to that in the future. Yeah. And the, and the last question, uh, sorry, the last area before I forget, because one of my grad students may be salty about that because I'm not <laughs> talking about their pro their projects, is laboratory assays. Okay, uh, I also think it's very important that you would continue to develop on farm and laboratory assays for forage and feed analysis. And one area that we have been uh, targeting recently is starch digestibility. Um, you know, unfortunately, I cannot tell you that I will develop a new assay because I don't think we will. Uh, but we are trying to understand the current assays uh, and how variable they are. So, so basically, we have been working with all sort of uh, time points for starch digestibility, uh, and it could be in vitro, in situ methods, anything related to that, to try to understand what to do with those. And what I can tell you for now is um, I like the seven-hour starch digestibility because it has a little bit less variation than the other assays, probably because it's the assay that we conduct for longer. Okay. It give you long enough time to sort of wash out some of the noise. Yep. Seems like. Okay. Well, that, that brings up a question I wanted to ask you. Um, you're interested in feed analyses. Um, you know, from, I think from the perspective of a dairy producer for sure, and probably even some consultants, the number of feed assays and like academics like me, you know, are, are saying to people, oh, you need to be sampling pretty much all the time. And you know, some people are pushing, you need to do all these analytical measures all the time to feed the models so we can predict everything accurately. And um, that can seem overwhelming, even just from a cost standpoint, much less the time required and stuff. So I'm curious, from your perspective, are there things that people should really be focusing on for feed analysis? Are the things that honestly you think are a waste of time and money to, to analyze repeatedly? What are your thoughts on that? I agree with you that we actually need to analyze samples very often, okay? Uh, uh, I don't think we understand that when we look to a bunker or a silage bag, but across that bunker, across the silage bag, there's a lot of variation, okay? Uh, and sometimes we think, oh, a silo bag does not have as much variation as a bunker. We actually tested that for dry matter some years ago, and actually it does. So it, it is a big deal. Um, I do think we have to focus on that. Now, the number of assays we have now are actually a lot, and I don't understand them all. Um, I'm actually trying to understand some of those now. And what I think is first, you have to submit samples to the same laboratory over time using the same methodology, because this way you can compare apples to apples. Right. If you start comparing samples from different labs, you are not comparing the same thing. So I would avoid that for sure. Um, the other thing I think is very important is, uh, and I know the commercial laboratories do that very well, is to focus on development of NIR calibrations. Right. NIR or the near infrared 
uh, basically is a much faster and cheaper way of analyzing feeds. And I know that when we think from a dairy nutritionist perspective, especially for research, we prefer to see wet chemistry. But I do believe that a lot of those assays in NIR calibrations, they are actually great. So we don't necessarily need to analyze wet chemistry. And I think that helps a lot with the issue of deciding how many samples to submit, you know, and waiting for results. So, so uh, that, that's how I would analyze. Obviously, I would try to make sure that the assay I'm actually asking for has a good calibration, right? And the commercial labs can give you a better uh, perspective on that. They're actually very honest about how good their uh, products are. Um, so uh, that's the first thing I would do. From a forage perspective, I think we need uh, very specific uh, measurements. I will go probably with crude protein, NDF, or a uh, different version of NDF, depending on the uh, software used for rational formulation. Uh, NDF digestibility would be very important, or if not digestibility, the undigested portion of the NDF, like UNDF. Uh, starch, obviously. Um, starch digestibility, I just mentioned I prefer the seven hours. It's just what I'm used to. Okay, I know it's not great, but it's also not awful. Um, and then after that, you can start adding what you think is more important to each of those, right? I don't think you should or need to analyze silage fermentation for every sample, but I think the visual aspects of the silage is very important. So you have to check that uh, probably daily or every other day. And as soon as you have concerns, submit for analysis as well. Okay. Yeah, that's great feedback. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, so some bigger picture questions just to kind of probe the way you think about things. So if we if we gave you some kind of magical ability to put up a billboard that the whole world could see, what would it say? <laughs> yeah, that's a very hard one, you know. Um, something I, I have been thinking a lot lately, and I know that there's a lot of very nice research out there. I'm not part of that research, okay? Uh, it's different ways to showcase what the dairy industry does to help with sustainability. So if I could choose something, it would be something related to that, okay? Uh, what fascinates me about dairy cows is their ability to convert things like byproducts of other industries into milk, or in my case, ice cream, because I love ice cream. Okay, <laughs> so probably would be something related to that. You know, I would go maybe a picture starting with some sort of waste from an industry, a dairy cow, and then a, the ice cream of your choice. So. Excellent. Yeah, I like to tell people that um, even making your T-shirt creates some waste, but we got to have dairy cows to use that up, right? Yep. It is time to our famous three. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Excellent by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. ICC Animal Nutrition, adding value to nutrition. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. So three wrap-up questions we ask of every guest. First of all, what is your favorite dairy-related book or resource? Uh, I don't read a lot of dairy books, uh, but I go a lot through, obviously, Journal of Dairy Science. To me, that's the way to go, right? That's yeah. where all the most recent information is. 
Uh, but I also try to go through magazines like Hortz Dairyman, Progressive, uh, Dairy, because uh, I want to see what's going on in the industry. And it obviously helps a lot with the extension program to make sure you actually reach the audience who you're supposed to reach. Absolutely. What about your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? So I'm a nerd. So I actually read a lot of novels rather than books that would help me to develop career or skills. Uh, my favorite types of books would be books like uh, The Da Vinci Code or, you know, that that it, we need to have a hero there trying to find clues and then solve an issue. That's that's what I like reading about. I like those too. Is there one that you've read recently that uh, comes to mind? So recently uh, I went through a, a series of books that are more related to uh, uh, the Middle Age and wars. Uh-huh. Okay, so... I, I didn't get any recent books that I'll tell you, hey, you should read those. But, you know, if you start going back to some of those, anything from Harry Potter to Lord of the Rings is a must read for me. So, Great. We'll have to compare notes sometimes. Um, okay. Lastly, then, in your opinion, uh, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are less successful? I think the most successful are those that are connected uh, with a lot of people. Uh, I think that's working is key, you know, because people will see things you will not. And, you know, you have to rely on those because you have to understand everything that's happening. Uh, but also, I think it's very important to continue your education somehow. Okay, not necessarily grad school or specific courses. Yes, if you want to do those, those are great as well. But also going through presentations, reading different material, trying to open your mind to new uh, ideas and technologies, I think that makes a huge difference. You know, uh, you're going to read a lot of things you disagree with. Uh, your first reaction to new things will always be, I doubt that this is true. But at least we'll put that into your mind and you'll think about it. And I think that helps you to develop even if you don't see the happening. So so that's, that's how I see that the best professionals are. Very good in networking and very interested in seeing or learning new things. Excellent. Lifelong learning, that's the key, right? Okay. Well, Dr. Luis Ferretto, thank you again for being a part of this podcast. Uh, Enjoyed the conversation. I think it's going to be a great resource for people out there. Yeah, thank you. And signing off again from the Dairy Podcast Show, this is Barry Bradford. Be sure to subscribe. See you next time.